0: The police, the courts, the military. We've seen even more evidence over the past week that America's police and military institutions are saturated with racism, white supremacy, and fascism.
1: We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity.
0: Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's April 13th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com/slash the socialist program and subscribing. And once you subscribe, register for our patrons-only seminar with Brian Becker on next Wednesday, April 21st at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Supporters can ask Brian questions beforehand and live on the seminar. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarim, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarim is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, what do we have in store for listeners this week? What can people expect coming down the pike this week?
1: Yeah, another big week. Again, tomorrow we speak as we do every Wednesday with Professor Richard Wolf talking about the biggest stories in the economy with Richard Wolf, he's an economist, a socialist. Tomorrow we're going to be focusing on the issue of the global minimum corporate wealth tax. Again, that's been in the news. We're gonna talk about what that actually means and what impact it will have or won't have. On Thursday, we're going to have a really special edition of The Real Story. You know, we talked about the U.S. war in Afghanistan starting way back in the 1970s. That was a really important first part of a two-part series. We were going to continue that series and will continue it, but we were going to do it this coming Thursday. But we've decided to wait one week to do it because we're gonna have a special show with Gloria LaRiva and Mara Verhaden-Hilliard from the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund and myself talking about the life and legacy of US Attorney General Ramsey Clark, former Attorney General. Ramsey died at the age of 93 just this last Friday. A very big loss we were all associates with ramsey i worked with ramsey since 1989 worked in his office starting in 89 when the u.s invaded panama we were partners uh, along with many other people in launching the anti-war movement during the first gulf war back in 1990-91 And again, we've worked together on so many different issues. Ramsey Clark is a truly unique figure in modern American history, one of a kind. And we're going to take a look at what he did, the struggles he was involved in. But it will really be, in a way, a walk through, again, parts of American history, modern American history, the struggle for justice and against imperialism, stories that are largely untold by the mainstream media. So we're really looking forward to that. Nicole, Esther Walter, as Nicole mentioned in the introduction, obviously the U.S. military is aware that there's a major problem with the infiltration and recruitment by white supremacist and fascist forces, not only inside the police departments of America, and that's pretty well documented, but also within the U.S. military. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin announced this week an immediate action to counter extremism in the military and, quote, establish a countering extremism working group. While many of the details will undoubtedly be made available later, this is a clear sign that the Pentagon high command is aware of a serious problem regarding recruitment of active duty military members as well as military veterans by fascist organizations in the United States. We have talked on this show in the past about that remarkable letter sent to all 1.3 million members of the U.S. military on January 12, 2021, from the Joint Chiefs of Staff. All eight of them signed the letter. The letter was sent six days after the January 6th fascist-led attack against the Capitol building that was designed to stop the pending certification of the 2020 presidential election. The letter from the Joint Chiefs of Staff stated, quote, the American people have trusted the armed forces of the United States to protect them and our Constitution for almost 250 years. As we have done throughout our history, the U.S. military will obey lawful orders from civilian leadership, support civil authorities, ensure public safety in accordance with the law, and remain fully committed to protecting and defending the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Then the letter goes on, quote, the violent riot in Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021, was a direct assault on the U.S. Congress, the Capitol building, and our constitutional process. The letter goes on, quote, we witnessed actions inside the Capitol building that were inconsistent with the rule of law, the right of freedom of speech, and assembly do not give anyone the right to resort to violence, sedition, and insurrection. And then it says, as service members, we must embody the values and ideals of the nation, support and defend the Constitution, and any act to disrupt the constitutional process is not only against our tradition's values, it's also against the law. Now, I'm not going to talk right here about the Pentagon's love of the rule of law and all of that nonsense, the hypocrisy there. You could hold that letter up with dripping sarcasm and ridicule because the U.S. government and the military in particular constantly violates the rule of law by invading, occupying, destroying other countries. That said, the point here is that the reason they sent this letter is the Pentagon high command was clearly alarmed that some parts of the military might be about to turn against the civilian elected government, as Donald Trump and his supporters were encouraging because they wanted to stop the election certification. I also want to remind our audience that the January 12th letter from the Joint Chiefs of Staff came just nine days after a remarkable, extraordinary letter signed by all former secretaries of defense who are alive, and that was published in the media. And that op-ed, that opinion piece, that statement basically was a clear warning to the Pentagon Department of Defense officials appointed by Trump not to use the U.S. military to try to overturn the election outcome. Now, The fact that the Joint Chiefs had to send a letter to 1.3 million members of the military warning them, basically, not to try to disrupt, using the military to disrupt the civilian constitutional processes, coming as it did just nine days after this remarkable published letter or document from all living secretaries of defense, those kind of statements are a signal to the world that all is not well within the empire that all is not well within the seemingly omnipotent American government, that in fact, this government is wracked by internal contradictions. And the release of these statements undoubtedly has the impact of weakening the image of U.S. imperialism, the U.S. empire, the U.S. government to people all over the world. And yet they did it. They did those things. They signed those statements, they sent those letters, they published those op-eds, and that's a clear sign that there is a growing problem inside the U.S. military. Let's not, though, disconnect the rising tide of fascist organizing that's been going on inside the military and among veterans and, of course, within police departments from the overall institutions that we're talking about. The police have been functioning as a de facto fascist-like occupation force in working-class poor and especially Black and Latino communities and against indigenous people since, well, since the beginning here, since the beginning of this settler project. This has gone on for 400 years. And those methods of policing are coinciding with, tied up with, and sort of expanding the perspective of white supremacy, of the master race theories that are core to fascism. And when the U.S. goes to war as it does repeatedly in Korea, in Vietnam, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, the occupation force is sent by the Pentagon, not sent by the Proud Boys, not sent by the Three Percenters or the Oath Keepers or the KKK, sent by the same Joint Chiefs of Staff to high command Those occupation forces use the most disgusting, racist, stereotyping, language, and caricaturing of the colonized or occupied people, and we all know that to be true. So when you think about why is there a rising force of fascism and white supremacy in the military, it's not simply because of outside recruitment, it's the nature of the beast, and when I talk about the beast, I'm not talking about all the soldiers, the sailors, the marines, the rank and file enlisted people in the military. I'm talking about the high command. The military in America is a microcosm of class society. The officers are just the bourgeoisie in uniform, and the rank and file soldiers, sailors, marines are really the working class in uniform, but it reflects the same class divide. So when we talk about the problem inside the U.S. military and the growing problem in the organic foundational problems of these institutions, we put blame where it should be put, and that's with the high command, the bourgeoisie in uniform.
2: And so, Brian, I also wanted to add about that report is that it seemed really strange to me that in the announcement about this working group and these immediate key areas of concern that I didn't see any action highlighted to begin like screening members of the military and weeding out extremists. And I'm not sure if that's being done by a different kind of action separate from this new announcement, but I didn't see that. And I also know that on the ground, we've covered repeated congressional hearings about documented evidence of white supremacists in the military. And I didn't have any sense that this new working group inside the Pentagon is going to build on any of the evidence that's already been gathered. Maybe they don't reveal that, but I just found it really strange that it didn't mention that. And I know that you said that, you know, you don't want to mention the hypocrisy because, you know, you could obviously hold up all these announcements because they would be dripping with, you know, hypocrisy. But you know, we may not emphasize the hypocrisy, but the hypocrisy is the crisis. And the establishment of this working group and these new rules are just proof that this history of fascism abroad is just coming home to roost. And it's only when it came home to roost on January 6th and leading up to January 6th that these letters and all these new rules are written. So the hypocrisy is the crisis. And you can't, for decades and for centuries, you know, plunder and commit genocide around the globe and don't have that same level of violence, the same attitude toward authoritarianism. And that's what's really coming home to me this week in terms of talking about the military, in terms of talking about the police, that type of authoritarianism practiced abroad, not come home here to the United States.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think this is an important point. I mean, for the left, for radicals, for anti-imperialists, for people who want profound social change, it's imperative that the left also organize among rank-and-file soldiers. Certainly in the Answer Coalition, we did that during the Iraq War, and certainly back in the day, Vietnam soldiers and Marines and Vietnam veterans played a leading role in the anti-war movement. The workers of the war, the rank-and-file, they turned against the war. And when they did that, they became allies in the anti imperialist movement. And, you know, when you think about how what happened in the military and organizing and winning soldiers, sailors, and Marines over to the cause of anti imperialism, you could see there's been profound success. That's completely different with the police departments. The police are the hired hands of the ruling class, they are the agents of the bourgeoisie. They exist. Their job is simply to police other workers, to dominate working-class communities, to dominate in America, to dominate black communities in particular. Again, there's no hope for progressive organizing amongst the police. The police are, in fact, an unreformable agency. They are not like the military where people temporarily come into the armed forces, wear the uniform, and then go back to their working-class status in life. Anyway, talking about the cops, Nicole, again, right while the Derek Chauvin trial is taking place for the murder of George Floyd, just miles away, another brutal police killing of a young black man. And now people are back in the streets. We're talking about Minnesota.
0: Brian. You're exactly right. I think your outline of what's going on in the police and what the police are and what they do is exactly right. And there was yet another example, yet another example, even in the midst of the Derek Chauvin trial, George Floyd's murderer, the police just miles away in Brooklyn Center shot and killed a young man, Dante Wright, 20 years old. The police chief came out yesterday and said he thought you know, he hasn't spoken with the officer who is Kimberly Potter. She was 26 years on the force. The police chief came out and said he thought it was an accident that she meant to use her taser, but instead she used her weapon. He doesn't know that for sure, but that's what he thinks based on the body cam footage. And I'll say, you know, he put out the body cam footage, you know, within 24 hours, which I think is such a clear testament to the fact that they know the community is in pain. They know that. Minnesota, Minneapolis, the Brooklyn Center, that people are extremely angry, that people are extremely sick of this kind of racist, violent treatment, this kind of grotesque murder that continues to happen. And just two years ago, Kobe Edgar Dimek Hessler, who is 21, was also fatally shot in Brooklyn Center, same exact little town right outside of Minneapolis. And Kimberly Potter, the woman who shot and killed Dante Wright, Kimberly Potter was actually there on the scene. She got there right after the shooting took place. An investigative report stated that she told the two officers who were involved in the shooting to leave the residence, get into separate squad cars, turn off their body cameras and not talk to each other. She's the president of the local police union. She's, again, been on the force for 26 years. This is a very senior officer who should, you know, definitely know the difference between a taser and a weapon, a gun. But you know, more importantly, it just shows so clearly, you know, how willing she is to manipulate the situation and to make sure that nobody was charged in that case. Nobody was charged in that case of the 21-year-old Demac Hessler being fatally shot. And this was a case of mental health. And the fact that this happened in the middle of this trial, where the whole world is watching this trial of Derek Chauvin, and what we're seeing in the Derek Chauvin trial is the police chief coming out and saying of Minneapolis, well, you know, he wasn't trained that way. This was one bad apple. That's clearly the argument that he was making. That's clearly the argument that a lot of the police who have testified in this trial are making. They're trying to say it was just Chauvin. No, policing is fine. Police were fine. You know, we are here to serve you. Derek Chauvin was the one guy who was bad. And then in the middle of that, Kimberly Potter goes and kills Dante Wright. It just really shows that that's actually not the case. Esther,
1: I mean, Dante Wright, when he was being pulled over, For a traffic stop, he actually called his mom. He was scared.
2: Right. He called his mother. And I think that the fact that he did that, you know, humanized this case and really tugged at the heartstrings of people, not only in that community, but around the country, because, you know, mothers all over the country know their sons call them when they see those flashing police lights in the rearview mirror. And this is how one of those phone calls ended. And also that this is happening, you know, as the prosecutors in the Derek Chauvin case are giving their closing statements. They gave their closing statements on Monday and they ended as they started two weeks ago, hammering home with more specialists that it was Derek Chauvin's depraved act of kneeling on Floyd's neck that killed George Floyd, but that this act Was a violation of Chauvin's training, that Chauvin is a dangerous outlier in policing that otherwise is overall good. But not only is the single bad Apple defense ignoring that there were three other cops with Chauvin that day doing the same thing, ignoring the Minneapolis Police Department's long history of brutality and abuse toward the Black community, which is met with violence by police at seven times the rate that whites are. And that is from the Minneapolis Police Department's own records. And now with Dante Wright, the unarmed 20-year-old being shot and killed after another questionable traffic stop in a Minneapolis suburb, you know, just 10 miles from where the Chauvin trial is happening, this further pokes holes in this idea of Chauvin being just one bad apple, you know. And then we have a new video emerging of an army medic, Karan Nazario, being pulled over in Virginia by a town of Windsor cops who have their guns drawn, who pepper spray him, assault him and threaten him with execution and ruining his military career. You know, these are just the most recent examples of proof that a killer cop like Chauvin, cops that easily escalate routine matters involving black men into deadly matters are very common actually, and are commonly inflicting police terror onto especially black, brown and working class communities. You know, so all of this You know, what's happening in Minneapolis, what's happening in Virginia is just further proof that Chauvin is not just another bad apple. Right. And that this entire policing system is rotten and it's a rotten system of policing. So, you know, as we've discussed, just as the Chauvin trial is raising serious questions about why he was even detained in the first place, these two new incidents captured on video are really just asking the same questions about why right in Minnesota, or Nazario in Virginia, even needed to be stopped. And if they were stopped, why the incident had to be escalated with unnecessary commands to the point that a young father is dead and another man going home from work is threatened with death. And, you know, as a matter of fact, Nazario's attorney Jonathan Arthur, said in an interview on CNN Monday night, something that I think is new. He described how the already violent and abusive incident caught on video could have easily ended in another murder by the police in Virginia. So I think we have a clip of him speaking on CNN.
3: Once again, you're facing Joe Gutierrez already having threatened to kill you. I think he was displayed, displayed admirable comments, what I would require and expect from you know, the, the United States Army officer to be able to remain that calm, knowing that one wrong move and you're going to die. And it, it was made worse by the fact that we had one officer telling him to keep his hands out of the window while the other officer telling him that, uh, you know, he, he needed to open the door and get out. My client had to figure out which one of those inconsistent commands to, you know, comply with and. You know, he picked the one to keep his hands out of the air, which is good, because, you know, he was terrified that if he was going to move his hands below where Officer Gutierrez could have seen him to undo that seatbelt, they have murdered him. And if they have murdered him, then what would have happened is the investigation would have revealed that he had a completely legal pistol in that vehicle, and then that's all we would have heard, was that the police got a man with the pistol, not what actually occurred.
2: So, yeah, that's Jonathan Arthur, the attorney for Karan Nazario. And so maybe if he had complied, like so many other men do, by reaching for their license or in this case, unbuckling his seatbelt, you know, Nazario could have easily been killed, you know, with all that ferocious hostility we see on the video from Gutierrez. And that's the main cop we see in the video, in his face, holding a gun sideways at his head, you know, who pepper sprayed him and threatened him you know, escalating the situation way high, you know, and he actually has been fired. So one last thing I want to say is that human rights attorney Marjorie Cohn pointed out in a recent article that there is an important difference between how police are trained by their departments and how they are trained by their unions. You know, and you mentioned that union president in Dante Wright's case, the cop who shot and killed him. And it's a difference between, and the unions, the fraternal order of police, FOP, they train police in something else that is referred to as killology, which could be roughly translated into that they are taught to kill rather than to de-escalate situations. And this training violates standards set by the United Nations. And Cole mentions that these are some of the facts about policing uncovered in an ongoing international commission of inquiry on systemic racist police violence against people of African descent in the United States And she's actually one of the rapporteurs on that committee. And so that training, when combined with racism and impunity given to police officers, is a special danger to Black people and Black men. You know, that the Brookings Institution says that even when we are unarmed and not attacking police are 3.5 times more likely to be killed by police than white people. And the institution also says that more than 75% of the time chokeholds are applied on men of color. You
4: know, one other thing to throw in on the topic is President Biden's comments on the killing of Dante Wright, which is, of course, related to all of these other issues of police brutality that are swirling in the national news right now. Um, So he talked to reporters in the Oval Office about the situation in Minnesota in the aftermath of the murder of Dante Wright. And he said, I haven't called Dante Wright's families, but my prayers are with the family. It's really a tragic thing. The question is, was it an accident? Was it intentional? That remains to be determined by a full-blown investigation. And then he said the video was fairly graphic. The question is not whether it was an accident or whether it was intentional. I mean, the question is whether or not there's gonna be any consequences for this cop, who murdered a 20-year-old man? I mean, the idea that this is the question, right, is like how culpable are the police? How mad should you be at the police as an institution really shows what Biden cares about. And it's about maintaining social control, not any semblance of justice. And he made that even clearer later on in his remarks. So then he started to do you know, the standard thing that we heard coming from the Obama White House too. I mean, I think this is basically where they're taking the template from, So he said, there is absolutely no justification, none for looting, no justification for violence. Peaceful protests, understandable. And the fact is that, you know, we do the anger, pain, and trauma, blah, 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 blah. I mean, the fact that he always starts off these sentences, right, with saying, don't do anything that disrupts things too badly, don't break the law. Don't go out and rebel and rise up, as is inevitable every time the police carry out one of these extremely high-profile murders. Like, like, that's really what Biden wants to emphasize right now. That's what he cares about, making sure that everything can continue basically as normal while this high-profile trial of Derek Chauvin is going on because he wants to avoid a repeat of the uprising that took place over the summer, but not at the cost of bringing actual justice to the many, many people murdered by police.
2: And Walter, to tell you the truth, when I listened to the video of the police officer yelling taser, 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 it reminds me of the video and audio from the killing The murder of Elijah McClain, where the police are actually making audible what they want to have made audible. It doesn't sound real to me. It doesn't sound real to me. And expert after expert has been on television former police officers, law enforcement experts saying, You can see her holding out the gun in front of her. She can see the gun. It's not a taser. And still, she wants to say that it was an accident. No one believes that it's even an accident. And what you're saying is so true. It's almost as if she has no culpability. She has no responsibility to prove that it's a so-called accident.
1: Yeah. And I think this is really important, what we're talking about here. Biden, while professing or suggesting that he cares, is actually just running interference for the police state. And as you said, Esther, the killology, meaning the police are learning how to not de escalate, but to kill people, they're also learned, and all of them know exactly what to say so that they're never culpable. So when you're being arrested, if you're being beaten up, if you're being attacked by the police, and if anybody has had this happen to them, you will know. That the police are going to say while they're doing it to you, stop resisting, stop resisting, stop resisting, even while they're beating your head in. Right. And also they have other things. They say, oh, the person died from excited delirium. This is like all around the country. People who die in police custody have died because of excited delirium. This is another code phrase that the police use in every police department. And then some of the fools in the right wing in the media say, well, I, I think George Floyd might have died from something else like excited delirium. I mean, I hear this on some of this talk show radio where people actually repeat back police code words for what they say when they know they're committing criminal acts. Oscar Grant, again, the police officer you know said, oh, I, I thought it was a taser. No, they didn't. This is all BS. And these police unions are not unions. We talked in the beginning of this segment about the Capitol Police. Well, the Capitol Police Union had its, you know, annual event at Donald Trump's hotel, the Trump International Hotel, eleven blocks from the Capitol, you know, the year before January 6th. I mean, the police are really a criminal enterprise in America, and all of these sort of statements by Biden and others that we still have to find out what happened. No, we know exactly what happened. We know exactly what happened.
0: We do know exactly what happened. And there's so much evidence that supports what all of y'all are talking about, especially when we look at what happened to George Floyd. And when we look at what is happening in this trial, like we talked about, this bad apple defense is clearly to try to save policing in this country and save the police state that this government has propped up.
1: Yeah, Nicole, that is right. And also, not only are they trying to let the police off the hook, you know, we've talked a lot what would happen if Derek Chauvin is acquitted. We have been saying for weeks if he's acquitted, This will be like what happened in L.A. in 1992 when the cops who beat Rodney King were acquitted, except it'll be nationwide. There will be a nationwide uprising if Chauvin is acquitted. So the police are making sure the ruling class in America needs to have a conviction so there's not a national uprising. And the way they can get the conviction is they're working with the police in Minneapolis to say he's just a bad apple. But obviously, this is designed to make the jury find him guilty. And Walter, that's what the government, that's what the ruling class needs. They need social peace right now because if there's an acquittal, things are going to go up.
4: That's true. I mean, in a way, it's a testament to the enduring power of the uprising over the summer that every powerful person in this country has to build that into their political calculations. They can no longer make their decisions assuming that the people will just passively accept it the events of you know, May, June, July 2020, showed that one of the possible outcomes of gross injustices like this is that millions of people can pour into the streets and engage in determined militant action against the police state. And in fact, you know, in addition to all over the country, actually all around the world, because that was happening last year too. So yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think that has completely changed the equation in terms of what the state, the government, think that they can get away with. I mean, the police are just so bloodthirsty and committed to doing what they've always done since their inception that, you know, the murders, the brutality has obviously continued. But the people who are tasked with the political management of the system, taking into account all of the varied interests and conflicting pressures that are placed on the system, on the government, those people know that would be actually very, very bad for them in the long run if Chauvin is fully acquitted.
2: I know that we want to move on, but I have to just tell you that police are so out of control. There's so many cases. These are the cases we know about, and there's so many cases that where there's no video or that just go unnoticed. And I just want to mention it right here in our own backyard, there was a Pentagon police officer who was actually just arrested because he shot and killed. Two men, because he thought that they were stealing a car, far from the Pentagon, it has nothing to do with his job, and but he was just arrested and charged with murder. So these cases are going forward, and they're only going forward because of the movement of people in the streets. And I wish there was some way we could keep track of all of them and at least try to hold these police accountable. But more and more communities are holding police accountable, and that's only because of the movement.
0: That's right. That's exactly right, Esther. Let's change gears and talk about some international issues that are going on. Walter, over the weekend, Israel completely destroyed destroyed one of Iran's underground nuclear fuel production centers. This is obviously huge news. You know, this is within the conversation that's happening around the Iran nuclear deal, you know, Trump having withdrawn from the Iran nuclear deal and The US now trying to get back into it. So tell us, you know, what's the real meaning of this? Why did this happen? Give us a little bit more information.
4: Yeah, that's right. Well, Iran is calling this an act of nuclear terrorism. I mean, this is a very extreme act of aggression that's timed to have the maximum disruptive effect to ongoing global diplomacy. So this was a cyber attack. It was very obviously carried out by Israel, both in terms of just who has the capability to undertake something like this, who has the motive, who has the opportunity. And then there have been lots of anonymous sources confirming this to all of the major media outlets around the world. So this was Israel. And the cyber attack caused the destruction of centrifuges that are important to Iran's nuclear energy program. Iran has always maintained that it's purely for peaceful purposes and developing nuclear technology for peaceful purposes is the sovereign right of every nation. But what this was really designed to do was to sabotage efforts that are making significant progress to revive the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, formerly called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. So that was trashed in May 2018 when the Trump administration walked away from the U.S. obligation under the deal, which was to lift sanctions, lift the suffocating economic blockade of Iran in return for Iran scaling down, essentially ending its nuclear activities. And so when the Biden administration took office, the big question was, will they return to compliance? The Biden administration's initial positions was quite intransigent, but in Vienna last week, there was major progress made when The remaining signatories of the Iran nuclear deal, which is the permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, plus Germany, plus Iran, met and came up with essentially a plan to go forward, which the details are in formation, but requires some sort of reciprocal action from the United States and Iran in a step-by-step synchronized way, with the United States taking the first move. So essentially, the broad outlines of a deal to revive the Iran nuclear deal was taking shape. And then all of a sudden, this attack on Iranian sovereignty takes place. This attack on peaceful civilian infrastructure takes place. The intention being that Iran will calculate and the Western countries will calculate that this is simply not going to be possible, that there can never be a reduction in tensions. The idea, I think, on Israel's side was that they would force Iran to retaliate to this act of aggression in a manner that would make the European countries and the United States less willing to sign an agreement with them. It seems like both sides are pretty wise to this. There have been statements from top officials saying that they're not essentially going to fall for the trap, but we'll see. I mean, you can never predict exactly what's going to happen in a situation as fraught and tense as this one.
1: There's a couple other parts to this story that I think are important. In addition to demonstrating, Walter, as you pointed out, that there can never be peace because the Israelis will never allow peace to be achieved between the U.S. and Iran, and that is designed to throw cold water on the idea that there could be a negotiated settlement. And as you're also suggesting, if Iran were to retaliate against Israel in any way, the U.S., which supports Israel no matter what, would say, Okay, we can't enter into the new round of negotiations, the new JCPOA or end sanctions because Iran has attacked Israel, which is, you know, breaking this cardinal rule in American imperialist foreign policy. So that's part of it too, but then there's this other feature which is that the leverage that Iran had was by increasing enriched uranium centrifuges to 20% It meant that Iran, if it wanted, is pretty close to being able to produce nuclear bombs. The Israelis are also calculating that by depriving Iran of its ability to enrich uranium centrifuges at that level, if this has been a considerable setback within this facility, then Iran loses the leverage because the Americans really don't want Iran to be close to a nuclear weapon, even though Iran says they don't want a nuclear weapon. The U.S. really fears Iran having a nuclear weapon because it has an equalizing impact on the relationship of forces. Israel, of course, has several hundred nuclear weapons, is not a member of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. But if Iran were to have nuclear weapons, which again, Iran says it doesn't want, that would be a big deal. And the American government knows that. And Brian, just to jump in really quick on that point, there's breaking news just now.
4: Iran has announced they've informed the International Atomic Energy Agency that they would be significantly stepping up their enrichment of uranium. They would be enriching uranium at a purity of 60%, substantially higher than what they've done in the past. Clearly making a calculation that they can't simply not react to this extreme provocation in all likelihood carried out by Israeli intelligence.
1: I want to mention one other quick thing. This happened the day Lloyd Austin arrived in Israel. So the Secretary of Defense from the United States goes to Israel at the moment that the Biden administration is prioritizing an agreement or a potential agreement with Iran And is involved in negotiations in Vienna, even if they're indirect. They're negotiations nonetheless with Iran. And at that moment, when Austin arrives, the Israelis detonate an explosion inside a nuclear plant in Iran. So you would think, okay, Israel gets $5 billion a year from America. It's sabotaging a priority for Biden and a priority for the US government. There's going to be a lot of expressed outrage against the Israeli action, right? It's clearly illegal, but it's also against America, really, because it's really not sabotaging Iran's nuclear program so much as American diplomacy. So here's the Washington Post, front page. Here's how they responded to Israel doing that on the day Lloyd Austin arrived. Ready? Here it is. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, making the first visit to Israel by a senior Biden administration official, said the U.S. Israeli relationship was, quote, enduring and ironclad, close quote, amid growing Israeli concerns at efforts to revive the Iranian nuclear deal. I'm sorry, growing Israeli concerns? Israel just detonated an explosion inside of a nuclear plant in Iran to sabotage Biden's diplomacy. But the Post and the American capitalist imperialist media is so pro-Israel, That not only did they not denounce the Israeli state for doing this, they characterized it as growing Israeli concerns about efforts to revive the Iranian nuclear deal. I mean, what other country would be treated like this if they carried out a sabotage directly, not only violating international law, but sabotaging the American diplomatic efforts while at the same time getting $5 billion a year from the American state? I mean it's a remarkable demonstration of how the political discourse in the United States is so skewed as a sort of a blanket apology in advance for everything that Israel does.
0: Right. I mean when you contrast that with Syria for example, the United States makes these false claims that there are international laws being broken and then actually, you know, bombs or strikes Syrian
2: targets, not gives them 5 billion dollars. It's a complete opposite situation. It also reminds me of right before President Obama came into office, how Israel used that opportunity to like invade Gaza and start, you know, a mass campaign of terror there to announce their opposition to him that would continue for four years.
1: By the way, one last point on this. There was a second part. I read to you what was on the front page of The Washington Post on Monday, April 12th yesterday open the paper up and here's the headline from the inside story Pentagon chief that would be Lloyd Austin Pentagon chief says alliance with Israel is quote ironclad that's it not about the detonation of the explosion not about the sabotage of american diplomacy so even though Israel was obviously humiliating Lloyd Austin by doing this on the day he arrives again the american media Pentagon chief says alliance with Israel is ironclad. Amazing.
0: Brian, this is one reason why we run this show, why we do the socialist program. This is one reason why alternative media is so important to put this into context, to put all of these issues into context. We have with us, as we do every week, Walter Smolarik, who is the editor of Liberation News, which is a newsletter you can sign up for that comes out every week. And they put out a lot of really, really great stories that explain a lot of these things. So, Walter, I'll turn it to you. What are some highlights from the Liberation News this week?
4: Yeah, thanks, Nicole. And as always, if you want to sign up for Liberation's newsletter, which I highly encourage, please go to liberationnews.org. You'll see the button to sign up right at the very top. A few articles to highlight today. One, this is an incredible article. It's titled, Ramsey Clark Dies, An Attorney General Who Turned Against Imperialism. Ramsey Clark, this giant of the people's movement against war and racism. He passed away at the age of 93. On Thursday, we're going to have a special episode all about his life. In the meantime, really encourage people to check out this article. It's written by Gloria Lariva, who worked with him for many, many years. It has some incredible stories in there. I also want to encourage everybody to check out this other article titled Bessemer Amazon Union Vote. The class struggle will continue. The eyes of the world were really on the workers at the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer Alabama, the union vote did not succeed. There are many reasons for that. But what this article is arguing is that the class struggle, the people's movement against this giant corporation, and the movement of all workers for rights and dignity on the job will continue. And there's many reasons to think that the experience of the struggle in Bessemer will strengthen that movement. And finally, this is a militant journalism piece. It's produced by one of our activists on the front lines of the struggle against police brutality who's corresponding for Liberation News. It's titled, Miami Police Kill Woman While Serving a Legal Eviction Order. And it's exactly like the headline sounds. I mean, an absolutely outrageous act of police violence in the service of landlords who, in defiance of the Centers for Disease Control order, are continuing to kick people out all across the country. And they don't care if they use deadly force to do it. So again, go to liberationnews.org. Sign up for a newsletter at the top, and keep checking back on that website every day. We've got new articles all the time.
1: Walter, I want to also encourage people to go to liberationnews.org. We use that site a lot. We write for the site. The newsletter is excellent. Again, you know, we'll be back tomorrow with Richard Wolf. We're going to talk about what it means to have a global minimum corporate tax. And on Thursday, with Mara Hayden Hilliard from the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund and Gloria Lariva, we're going to be talking about the multiple stories over the past three decades with Ramsey Clark and his activism. And of course, for the Answer Coalition, Ramsey was a key person helping to found the Answer Coalition. And I want to just say real quick, what we're going to talk about is an amazing part of American history, largely unreported. I'm going to give you one little tease, one little example of what happened. In the middle of the Iraq war in 1991, I had just come back from Iraq. I went there with Muhammad Ali and his entourage at the request of Ramsey Clark. We went and we had an incredible experience there. We were also... Had Saddam Hussein's government release 16 American hostages to our delegation, and then we struggled with the State Department about how they were going to come back to the states, were they going to come back with an anti-war delegation or come back with the State Department. That was a huge drama that played out in the capital of Jordan, Amman, Jordan. The thing I want to mention is that in the middle of the war, in February, early February 1991, because the American people had no ability to actually understand what the U.S. war in Iraq was doing, meaning that it was relentlessly bombing hospitals, schools, supermarkets, civilian targets designed to supplement the sanctions that had been put in place in August 1990. In other words, a war against the Iraqi people, because none of that was being reported in the media. Ramsey Clark, along with John Alpert, who was an award-winning freelance videographer, a photographer, and an Iraqi-American translator who was another friend of ours. They flew to Amman, Jordan, rented a car, drove through Iraq, drove thousands of miles with bombs falling all around them, and collected this amazing video footage. They drove over 3,000 miles in the middle of the war, unprotected by anyone, documenting the war. And when they came back, Ramsey Clark and this team took the videotape, again, didn't go through an Iraqi censor, didn't go through a Pentagon censor. He took it to NBC, which had been routinely using John Albert's freelance video over the years. And again, John Albert was an Emmy-winning freelance videographer. They took this to Tom Brokaw and those people at NBC and said, here, here's the uncensored footage of what the US war in Iraq really looks like. And Tom Brokaw and the executive director said, great, this is a scoop. We're going to use it. And then within an hour, that was undone. That video was rejected because NBC said, because it came from Ramsey Clark, who was the former attorney general, they wouldn't touch it because he was associated with the anti-war movement. Then they took the video over to CBS and they talked to Dan Rather's people at evening news on CBS. They said, yes, we'll air it tonight. Within an hour, the executive director of, of CBS was fired and it didn't run. Then by the time we got the video to ABC, the people at ABC said, no, thank you. Variety Magazine wrote this up. We were telling people the story that obviously the Pentagon was interfering, talking to networks, telling them, don't use this uncensored footage from Ramsey Clark in this heroic trip to Iraq. Unbelievable journalism. Don't use it because it'll make America look bad. And the American media didn't use it. Those are the kind of stories that people don't know about that are associated with ramsey clark and the struggle domestically he was close to friends with working with dr martin luther king and coretta scott king working on the poor people's campaign in 1968 when he was an attorney general these are the stories that people need to know but won't know because the american media so demonized ramsey clark anyway we have a great week coming up
0: You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners.